Well, hey there, folks. Welcome back to Legends, Lore, and Larceny. My name is Charlie Stone, and I hope you had a great two weeks since we last hung out. Uh, as always, I'm so excited to take a deep dive into something weird with you, my loyal listeners. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that last episode about Crossroads. It, honestly, it was a lot of fun to do, uh, and it was sort of, you know, kind of random. I didn't know where uh, it was going, and I didn't know there was going to be so much. I could learn about uh, the Crossroads themselves and liminal deities. Uh, I've got another good one for you this week, and if you're listening from North America, uh, this will be especially important, especially uh, if you like going into the woods alone. Uh, I would really appreciate it if you would head to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and give the show a rating and review. If I had my druthers, you know, like all the druthers I could have, all of the reviews would be five stars. But right now, I would settle for any reviews you'd be willing to give the show Um, because more ratings and reviews means more people seeing the show. Uh, and listening to it and learning a little bit. Uh, and that's what I want to do with this show to entertain and inform. So thanks in advance. Uh, I know you'll take a few seconds to rate and review. Okay. Uh, I wrote this before uh, doing all the research. It, it may take an hour. It may take 30 minutes. I don't think it's going to take that long uh, because I... I was way too ambitious. I wanted to put a lot into this episode, but due to time constraints and my own poor planning, it's it's going to be a medium-sized. It's not going to be like 15 minutes. It may be, you know, 30-ish. Uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of Native American monsters. Before we get into the myths and monsters, let's talk about who the people we call Native Americans or American Indians or people of the First Nation came from originally. Uh, Let's go back. I mean, like way back. As you probably know, the world is very old. A lot of people disagree on just how old old it is. Um, Some sects of religion, specifically Christianity, believe that the earth is only about 6,000 years old. And most of science believes that the earth is between four to six billion years old. Yeah. Billion with a B. Um, that's a huge range of time for the possibility of the earth starting. Um, and four to six billion years. That's unfathomable for me. That's so incredibly old. I can't count that high. Um, Well, during these many, many years, the Earth has had its ups and downs. Um, Several times, most of the life on its surface has been wiped out by asteroids, floods, diseases, other natural disasters, or so we think. Uh, And if you were alive and conscious during 2002, you know that it's been covered in lots of ice several times. And I say 2002 because that's when the classic animated movie Ice Age came out. Uh, From what I understand, there have been a few ice ages, and we might just be in one right now, although global warming might have something to say about it. Uh, Most sources I found agree that Earth has had about five or six ice ages in history, and 
The most recent one, the Quaternary, Quaternary? Quaternary, started around 2.6 million years ago, and most people think in the science community that it's still happening. Uh, I don't think scholars know for sure, but the general theory is that the Bering Strait um, didn't always just contain water. Around 40,000 years ago, a land bridge began to appear between modern-day Russia and Alaska. Now, at that time, humans had spread all over Europe and Asia, but most of them hadn't managed to find this bridge. Uh, From 28,000 BCE to 10,000 BCE, this land bridge was above water, so, of course, people, being curious creatures by nature, decided to find what was on the other side. Uh, For a few thousand years, the people who crossed the bridge inhabited the bridge itself, and the area it was in called Beringia. Excuse me. Uh, After this period, these hunter-gatherers fully crossed into North America and started moving east and south. Uh, Some groups stopped in the place we call Canada, some stopped in the modern-day U.S., and many tribes wandered further down to Central and South America. Uh, They eventually progressed through history, building civilizations and ways of getting around, basically everything the Europeans were doing, just progressing a little more slowly. Uh, Sometime around 1,300... Wait, 13,500, sorry, to 11,000 BCE, the Clovis culture was begun somewhere in North America because uh, it's, it's named that because stone tools were found near Clovis, New Mexico, according to legendsofamerica.com. And I leaned pretty heavily on legendsofamerica.com. Um, they have a lot of Native American stories uh, and culture notes. And let me just say this. I don't know if Legends of America is a reputable source, but the monsters we're going to get into in this episode, I don't think they're reputable either. So I think I'm just going to go with whatever story sounds the most outlandish because I'm pretty sure that most Native American monsters aren't real. Um, no disrespect to anybody who believes they are real. I'm just, I'm skeptical, and you'll you'll see why. Uh, next, after the Clovis period, came the Woodland period, stretching from about 3,000 BCE to around 1,000 AD. Uh, in this period, uh, divided into three smaller periods, the New Americans built permanent shelters, explored pottery, uh, and other art and important stuff for their budding cultures. They also spread out way more, creating different cultures, gods, and creatures living in the wild. <clears throat> uh, skipping forward a bit, Vikings began sailing across the Atlantic Ocean in the late 10th century. Uh, some of them found Iceland and Greenland, but a few boats got blown off course and accidentally found Canada. They found three specific regions on the eastern coast of Canada and named them Vinland, Helluland, and Markland. Uh, Vinland is probably the most well-known, but I think it's cool that Norsemen found North America way before any other Europeans. 
Uh, everyone knows that Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, but what I didn't really think about was that Columbus never really found North America. He found the islands right next to the Americas, which honestly is super lame, Chris. He didn't even find the enormous landmass real near those islands. He was completely clueless. Uh, <clears throat> with Columbus also came other Europeans looking for fortune and glory, who eventually colonized and built new civilizations where there were already people living. Very cool of them. Uh, so that's a brief history of how people got to the Americas and what they did until they were found by Europeans. So let's talk about some mythological beasts and legends, which is probably why you're here. Uh, the plan is to give you some descriptions of the people who um, came up with this monster, the, the culture that um, fostered them. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about the monster itself. And then I'm going to read you some stories from different Native American cultures all over uh, North and South America. Because realistically, there are no real modern encounters with a lot of these things. Um, especially not here in this episode. Uh, spoiler alert, I didn't get to all of the Native American monsters I wanted to talk about in this episode, so there will be a part two. Um, and we, might, we may talk about modern encounters um, in that episode. Okay? Cool beans. Uh, let's start with the Inuit people of the Arctic regions of Greenland, Canada, and Alaska. The term Eskimo is sometimes used to describe the Inuit people, but that's a word applied to them by settlers who found them and means, quote, eaters of raw flesh, unquote, in English. It's seen as a derogatory term, so maybe ease off the word Eskimo in favor of Inuit. Uh, these people used dog sleds to get around and built houses out of blocks and snow uh, blocks of snow called igloos. So basically think of all the stuff you've heard about Arctic natives, uh, and I'd say most of it is true. Igloos, dog sleds, uh, big puffy coats. I'd say most of that is true in a way. Uh, the Inuit are divided into several different groups across the Arctic and have different dialects and subcultures, but Something that most of them have in common is the Kalupalik. Kalupalik? Kalupalik. Uh, from my research, I think that the Kalupalik is a solitary monster, although it could be a race of monsters, I guess. Um, there was no real distinction uh, in the research that I did if it was a group of monsters or just one entity. Uh, the general rundown of the Kalupalik is that it lived in the Arctic waters around Inuit territories in Greenland, Canada, and Alaska. It looked like a really messed up mermaid, sort of green and slimy. Uh, in some depictions, they look vaguely like women. Uh, in others, they are large sea monsters. Uh, they are generally thought to have scales and usually have green or gray bumpy skin. I'm saying they again because there could be more than one. 
Uh, children used to play around Arctic ice sheets in the water and would not suspect the Kalupalik until it was too late. It would emerge from the ice, shove the child into an amautik, a large pouch to carry young children on a uh, parent's back. So sort of like a baby Bjorn. You would strap it to your shoulders, shove the child in there, and then they could watch from behind, I guess. Um, Stories differ on why the Kalupalik would want these children. Some tales claim that the Kalupalik is lonely and wants some company in the form of children. Others claim that it simply has a hunger for these kids because apparently children are super tasty, and that'll be a, um, a common theme in this episode. No, I don't think that. I've never, you know, tasted kid, and I don't really want to. Uh, you know, call me politically divisive for that. I don't want to taste kid, but I don't care what you think. Uh, I will take a stand on this. I don't want to kill and eat children. Uh, others say that the Kalupalik can feast upon energy and youth, so they put children into a trance in their underwater hideouts and drain the children of energy. As the Kalupalik drains the children, it grows younger and more beautiful. So it sort of is like a mermaid or a siren type thing. Uh, children playing on the icy shores would hear an otherworldly hum coming from the water or a tapping noise coming from beneath the ice, and this meant that the Kalupalik was near. Uh, this was probably just the shifting and tapping of glaciers, which do make noise apparently, but Inuit parents use the Kalupalik as a boogeyman of sorts, as in, if you wander too near the shore, Kalupalik will snatch you, or... If you don't do your chores, I'll call Kalupalik to come and get you. Of course, most of these warnings were to keep the kids safe, since going too close to the water can result in drowning or hypothermia, and not doing your chores to help contribute in a harsh Arctic environment. That's not cool, kids. You gotta help. Well, I promised you stories, so let's look at some Kalupalik stories I managed to find on the web. Uh, Let me say this before I begin. The indigenous people of North and South America didn't really develop writing until colonists arrived, so most of their stories were passed down orally or through cave drawings. I'm going to try and summarize these stories so the ongoing game of telephone continues. Um, Just know that I'm going to try and present these stories as they are, but, you know, who knows if they're the same stories they were thousands of years ago. They may also be different versions of stories that you're familiar with, and that's because they've changed many, many times due to time, circumstance, and differing languages. So if I get something wrong or something that doesn't jive with the story that you know, I do apologize. Um, Just know that I'm trying my best. Okay? Good. So, the Kalupalik. We know that it grabs children, and this story backs up that idea with a twist. So one day... A boy and his grandmother were doing their daily chores. The grandmother was worried because they didn't have much food to last through the winter, and the boy was growing, and so was constantly hungry. The boy complained about not having enough food and doing too many chores, even though the grandmother was trying her best, and eventually she got tired of the constant moaning and complaining. She'd had enough. 
To help with the food scarcity, the grandmother called the Kalupalik and ordered the boy and offered the boy to it. Uh, Kalupalik took the boy to her cave and the grandmother was free of providing for the boy. Well, a short time later, the tribe discovered ways of hunting seals, so meat was pretty easy to come by. The grandmother had enough and began to regret giving the boy to the monster. So she recruited the help of a man and a woman, two great hunters in the tribe, to get her grandson back, and they agreed to help. They dove into the icy waters and eventually found the monster's cave. They also found the boy, who had a piece of seaweed wrapped around him. When the hunters approached, the boy called out and told Kalupalik that two people were there for him because he didn't want to go back to his grandmother's. Uh, And I can't really blame him because, I mean, she did sell him out to a monster because he was hungry, you know, like a growing boy. Uh, Kalupalik yanked on the seaweed and the boy was pulled deeper into the lair where the hunters were afraid to go. They tried again, wrapping deer skin around their shoes to soften their approach, as to not alert the monster, but the boy saw them again and called out again, and again, Kulupalik pulled him back into the cave. The hunters decided to try another approach. They waited until sunrise when Kulupalik allowed the boy to see the surface. The hunters waited in the reeds, hiding from the monster and the boy, and approached from behind, cutting the seaweed restraint. They took the boy back to the village, where he was taken back in by his grandmother and became an excellent hunter, just like the people who rescued him. Okay, so that's the first story. Another Kalupalik uh, story comes from the Nunavut Animation Lab. Nunavut Animation Lab. A place to share Inuit stories and folklore. Uh, This may be an original story, or it could be made up recently just to share the idea behind the monster. I'm not really sure, but it is a story about Kalupalik. I'll take what I can get. Um, A boy, his cousin, and their dog. Wait, I lost my place. Okay, sorry. Back to it. A boy, his cousin, and a dog were running around the shore of their village instead of doing their chores, which is a no-no. Uh, Many times they'd been told not to venture along the shores because Kalupalik might breach the ice and snatch them up, but the boys didn't listen. So naturally, Kalupalik jumped out of the water, grabbed the boy, and took him to a faraway island to keep him for, you know, draining. When the boy's father realized that he'd been taken, he started out in a kayak to find his boy. Along the way, he sees several animals that he could hunt or be hunted by, But he's focused on saving his boy. He passes on seals, walruses, and even the ultimate kill, the polar bear. Eventually, the man finds the island where his boy is being kept by Kalupalik, who had been checking in on him frequently. Uh, The man manages to get the boy on his kayak and takes him back to the village unharmed. Uh, From that day on, the boy stayed away from the shores of the village and always did his chores when he was instructed. Uh, so that's the Kalupalik. It takes kids from the water. Do I think it's real? No, not really. I think it's an Iro- uh, not an Iroquois. And <sighs> what was the word? It wasn't Iroquois. Inuit. Sorry. Uh, it's an Inuit boogeyman to keep kids out of danger. 
Do I think it's a cool story? Yeah, I do. Okay, on to the next one. I apologize for that typo, and I just realized that it affects the next story. Um, I was going to give you a rundown on Iroquois culture, but I accidentally wrote Iroquois above the next monster, so I say we already talked about the Iroquois. Um, So we won't be talking about the Iroquois, maybe next episode. Um, So I apologize for that in advance. Uh, and let's, you know, get into the next story. Let's forgive and forget. Uh, this one is weird, so it's going to be a little shorter than the others. In native, uh, several native tribes, mythologies, but specifically the Iroquois, there you go, and the Wyandot, there is a monster which enjoys killing and eating people, a pretty common thread in this episode. It's called the Flying Head, but in the native tongue, it's called, oh boy. Uh, this is a ridiculous word. We'll go with that. Uh, like a lot of Native American monsters, this thing could be a single monster or there could be several flying around. I think it kind of differs based on where the myth comes from. Um, I'm not going to keep calling it uh, the word I could not just pronounce, I'll be calling it the flying head. Um, we already talked about the Iroquois. We did not. I'm so dumb. So it's only fair that I briefly mentioned the other tribe associated with the flying head myth. The Wyandot tribe was its own independent tribe until it was forcefully integrated into the Iroquois about 1650 or so. They lived around modern-day Kansas City, Kansas, and up around the Great Lakes near Detroit. Uh, We know they lived near these modern-day cities because the Wyandotte helped found the cities themselves, helping out the French in the case of Detroit. Um, The origin of the flying head, or heads if there are multiple, varies from tribe to tribe, but I'll go ahead and tell the one I like the most. Uh, Before the Iroquois, there was another tribe whose name has been lost to time. So they're just identified as the tribe in legends. Well, the tribe was undergoing undergoing a horrible famine and the young men of the tribe wanted to move from the area to try and find more sources for food. The elders of the tribe didn't want to move since they'd been on that land for many years. The old men and the young were at odds. So the young men took the drastic option. They rounded up the old men of the tribe, the leaders, the elders, and cut off all their heads. Like you do. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a nursing home because I disagreed with somebody and then just decapitated everybody there. That it's guys, it's unavoidable. It's something that happens, okay? Cancel me if you want, all right? <laughs> I'll, I'll stand for my beliefs. Um, they decided to sacrifice these elders to their gods, so or God, I guess. Uh, so they bound all the heads together and dumped them in a lake. Again, exactly like you do. I cannot tell you the last time. Well, maybe it was Tuesday. Was it Tuesday? Let me check my calendar. Uh, I'm going to open my phone. Gosh, calendar. No, it was Wednesday. It says dump old heads 
into Tennessee River. Okay, so I I did do that. I did do that pretty recently um, because I wanted to uh, please God. Um, yeah, so they bound all the heads together, dumped them in a lake. In a freak accident or some sort of cosmic vengeance, the ringleader of the young men was caught in the ropes binding the heads together and was sucked down into the water. The lake became full of goo and other nasty stuff, and then out of the lake burst a massive ugly head with wings and talons. Uh, This is the uniform description of the flying head. People say it's about seven feet tall with tangled hair coming from the top, while also being covered in coarse hair or fur that's either black or brown, which protects from mortal attacks. So if you try to throw a spear at this thing, just prepare for it to be deflected. Uh, On the bottom are two feet with talon, resembling eagle's feet, and on the sides of the head are wings, maybe bird wings, maybe bat wings. Uh, The thing is wrinkled and distorted and has a mouthful of gnashing teeth ready to catch and eat people. However, the flying head is not always 100% bad. I found one story told by the Seneca tribe who call the flying head another ridiculous word, Dagwai Dagwanoenyant, Dagwanoenyant, but I think I'll stick to the flying head again. Uh, I'll try and summarize. There were 12 brothers, all excellent hunters and all possessing magical powers. Now at this time, Women were wandering around the forest, and they wanted to kill the brothers, since they were also witches. Uh, Well, one day, the eldest brother was out hunting when he saw a woodpecker in a tree. He tried to shoot it with an arrow, I assume, but it turned into a beautiful young woman who hypnotized the brother and then threw him off a cliff where he bounced off a rock where the witches threw men. Uh, He turned into bones when he hit that rock, and he joined a larger pile of bones where these witches had been killing men. Uh, The witches then came for the second eldest brother. They hypnotized him too, then buried him where he would remain alive, but under the ground. Um, The witches then picked off the next eight brothers, throwing them off of the cliff with the first brother. Um, But there were still two brothers left because they'd stayed at home since they were the youngest. The... Youngest brother, the baby, wanted to help his brothers. I don't think he was a baby. Uh, And the second youngest uh, told him that their uncle might be able to help. And it just so happened that their uncle was a giant flying head who would kill the youngest brother if he approached without speaking first. I don't know if this is a custom thing. I don't know if it's just a giant head thing. I've never met a giant flying head. But if I do, I'm definitely trying to get it going to try to get the first word in because apparently that's what you do. Um, the young man knew that his uncle loved eating hickory bark. So he gathered a bunch of that and then cut down some trees and shrank them with what I assume was magic and put them in his quiver to shoot at the giant flying head. Uh, while he was doing this, he walked over the ground where his brother had been buried alive and heard the cries of the brother. When he dug the man up, he was a screaming, mossy skeleton. So the boy brought the skeleton home and started his journey. The young man traveled to where his uncle lived and decided to ambush his uncle by turning into a mole and burying, burying, I'm going to take a second, burrowing into the ground. 
He burst through the ground and shot one of his trees at the uncle. The giant flying head fell off the rock it was perched on, uh, laughing because it had just been hit in the head with a tree, I guess, and then started flying away. It circled around and began following the young man. He shot more trees at the monster, leading it back to his home. It was gaining on him. The other brother heard the two coming and built a fire in their house, and when the young man and the head entered the home, they ambushed it through the smoke and beat it into submission. They commanded their uncle to help them find their brothers. He said that he couldn't stay, but he could help. The uncle blew on the skeleton brother, and he was restored to his normal fleshy self. I don't get it. Excuse me. The head brought the men to where their brother's bones were, and also the witches. He commanded the witches to fall off of their own cliff. Uh, They broke on the rocks below and became bones, just like their victims. The flying head then instructed the boy to put together the skeletons, like a jigsaw puzzle, Uh, And if they didn't get up immediately to tell them that a tree was falling and that they needed to move or be crushed under the tree. Well, sure enough, the skeletons leapt up and were restored, even though some of their bones were mismatched. Uh, There was also a random detail in there that I didn't include in the script, but I thought you should know about. Uh, One of the skeletons was a cannibal man who tried to ambush and eat all of the other skeleton boys, Um, but the youngest brother re-killed him, scattered his bones again, I guess. Um, The men returned home and lived happily ever after, and I assume they never saw their horrifying uncle ever again. Uh, So there are a few different ways the flying head has been portrayed, some good, some bad, but all pretty creepy. Uh, but how do you defeat a flying head? Well, that's important information if you ever see a flying head, I guess. Um, are there ways that you can defeat a flying head without shooting trees at it or using other forms of magic? Uh, yeah, there are. Uh, there's one more story about a woman defeating the flying head. Uh, the woman sat in her home tending the fire. She heard the flying head enter her home, creeping silently up behind her. She pulled some acorns from the fire and proceeded to eat them, saying how delicious the hot coals from the fire tasted. Well, the flying head heard this and wanted a taste, and apparently most of these monsters, very easily tricked, very dumb. Um, So it grabbed some coals from the fire and ate them, only to scream and burn its tongue, which made it fly away to nurse its wounds. So most of these monsters, like I say, just try to trick it. Um, Your success rate doesn't really matter if you're going to die anyway, and you can leave that monster with an embarrassing story. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the next and final monster from this episode. Uh, There's less out there uh, than the flying head and the, oh, what was the first one named? Oh my gosh. Sorry. Uh, the Kalupalik, the Kalupalik. Jeez. Sorry, folks. Um, there's less about the Kalupalik and the flying head. Uh, there's more. 
Oh my gosh. I'm getting frustrated with myself. I'm going to take a deep breath. There's more about out. Am I dumb? Am I stupid? Am I going to stop the recording? No, I'm going to leave all this in. It's raw. It's, it's, you know, you get to see behind the scenes. There's more out there about the Kalupalik and the flying head than there is about the Tataklea, but we'll go with what I can find. Yes, I did it. I finally did it. It only took like way more tries than were necessary. Uh, most of what I know about Tataklea comes from interviews with certain people from the Yakama tribe or nation. Uh, the thing we know the most about the Yakama nation is from the Yakama Indian Wars of 1855 to 1858, which saw the Yakima and 13 other tribes being forced in onto a reservation by U.S. forces in Washington state. Uh, the Yakima chief, Kamaikan, Kamaikan, wasn't having any of, it, any of it, so he declared war on all non-natives in the area. Uh, the native forces did well for about three years, but were ultimately defeated by the superior weaponry and tactics of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. forces lost no soldiers, but the natives lost about 20 men and suffered way more casualties. They were forced to accept a treaty proposed to them in 1855, which would include all 14 tribes into the Yakima Nation, although some tribes resisted and still resist to this day. Uh, much later, in the early 20th century, a reporter named L.V. McWhorter got some stories about the Tataklea from Yakima natives William Charlie in 1918 and Tamawash in 1919. Now, uh, these stories are basically all I could find about Tataklea, but there is a little bit of context I can give you before the stories. Uh, the Tataklea are supposedly a group of five giant sisters that looked like owls. They would fly around and snatch up children to eat. Again, why are children so tasty? I mean, I, I, I don't know that. These monsters know that. That's, that's very important for you to note in your, in your books. Um, these uh, giant witch ladies also ate a bunch of nasty stuff like frogs, lizards, bugs, and snakes, a.k.a. stuff that the natives didn't eat. Uh, one other thing that most of the articles agree on is that they had the ability to mimic human speech, luring people into their caves to kill and eat them. Uh, also, the story I have references something called the last creation, and I have no idea what that means. I found the Yakima creation story, but there was nothing about a subsequent creation. Uh, it might have something to do with the flood myth from multiple religious beliefs. Um... According to this first story, however, maybe the sisters didn't just eat the children they took. Uh, it goes like this. There were five Tataklea sisters before the last creation that I brought up, but after, there were two, and they popped up in California. The Shasta Indians were digging roots for food in the area and knew that there were supposed to be giant owl sisters around, so they were extra vigilant. Apparently, they weren't vigilant enough because the sisters took one of their little boys. Uncharacteristically, though, they didn't eat the boy. They wanted to raise him and live with him. 
Uh, after a few days, the boy escaped back to his people, and not long after this, the Tataklea were destroyed. We don't really know how, but their home in a cave was seen as red hot and eventually blew up. Were the sisters camping out in a volcano? Maybe, but they were never seen again, at least not in that area, so they probably died. One of the Owl sisters lived, but not for long. She was drowned, and out of her eye, all owls were created to soar through the night, hunting prey on silent wings. Now, this is the other story I found, the one from Tamawash, and it goes like this. A Yakima chief named Shopautan, or Owl, lived at Poyikusan. One day, he went hunting along the Natchez River, which I assume is in the Washington or California area, and he didn't return that night. Well, his people were getting worried. They're yelling in the village, Owl hasn't returned, and Owl hasn't come home, and Owl is lost. Lurking around the village are the five Owl sisters. They hear that a powerful chief is out in the wilderness, defenseless, and decided to hunt him down and eat him. Shopautan knew that the Owl sisters were hunting him. Uh, He knew that it was a distinct possibility, so he holed up in a cave in the sheer face of a cliff and set a trap. Uh, He'd been hunting deer uh, and had skinned and gutted the deer, so he filled the tripe or the stomach of the deer with uh, some blood from the deer. He sat it in front of him as soon as he, <clears throat> excuse me, as soon as he heard one of the sisters coming for him. When she climbed into the cave, she saw the nasty object lying in front of Chopautan and was instantly grossed out. Get rid of it, she cried. Nah, don't worry about it. It's just something powerful. You just have to step over it, said Chopautan. The sister began stepping over the gross stomach thing, and when her foot was over it, Chopautan poked it with a stick. Uh, The stomach full of blood made weird noises when he poked it, and that scared the sister. She freaked out, ran out of the cave, and forgot that it was a cave in the wall of a cliff, so she fell into the river below and drowned. Now, there could be some overlap between these two stories, since in the first, the sister drowned and her eye was used to create owls, and one of the sisters also drowned in the second. So, you know, that, that could be one myth just stretched out. Uh, So those are the monsters in part one of a special two-part episode on Native American monsters. And who knows, I may decide to do another episode in the future, maybe a third part, since these myths are so wild and entertaining, but uh, we'll keep it at two for now. Next episode, we'll have some of my favorite Native American monsters, like the fearsome Wendigo and the elusive Uctena. So stay tuned. You can find more information and updates about the show on social media uh, on Instagram at Legends Lore Larceny Pod and X, formerly Twitter, at Legends LL Pod. Shows come out every other Saturday. Uh, And as always, these episodes were written, produced, and edited by me, your host, Charlie Stone. I hope you have a great two weeks, and I hope you come back for more information about these awesome Native American monsters. Well, that's about all I have to say. Uh, As always, I already said that, but as always, stay legendary.